You are now listening to Out of the Blank. So welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Richard Lowe. So Richard, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Oh, that's quite a story. I've got, I've got an interesting background. Um, currently, I'm a ghostwriter. I do that professionally, and that's how I make a living. I make a pretty good living at it. I'm also an author. I've published 60 books on Amazon, and I've ghostwritten 28 books. Um, and believe it or not, all of those books were written since I left Trader Joe's in 2013. So I've written over 80 books in, what is that, about six years. So I'm guessing you still like the authenticity of actually writing something rather than the new age technology. Everything's going transfer to typing. Well, I use uh, um, dictate to voice or dictate to type. So voice, voice to type. Um, to do it. Don't you miss the whole idea of having a pencil or something in your hand? I mean, crafting out some words? No, I hate it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I think a lot of times when people hear the word ghostwriter, the first thing I thought of was you're writing books about ghosts. And a lot of people don't actually understand what your form of ghostwriting is. So why don't you explain it? Well, what a ghostwriter is, is somebody who writes a book for somebody else and that somebody else who's called the author pays them and that person is their names on the book. So when you see a book by Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't write any of those books. Those were all written by somebody else. Yeah. He doesn't have the time. He's too busy tweeting about people or drinking like 30 diet cokes. He's not a writer. And if you read his tweets, you can tell he's not a writer. And then the same thing with every other celebrity you've ever seen, every other politician, every leader of industry, 99% of them are all written by a ghostwriter, which is somebody like me. Oh, so the same thing can kind of be chalked up instead of writing it in a book. It could be the same thing as writing a tweet out. That's someone that does that publishing or social platform thing for them. Right, right. Ghostwriters also do music. Uh, there was a big, uh, big um, flap with uh, – with, um, were the rap singers some of their music was ghostwritten and there was a problem with that a few years ago that i heard about but that's pretty common that, that things are ghostwritten and it's it's a very interesting thing i've done the 28 books i've done books on uh cleaning supply companies to an afghan politician to uh memoirs of a pow to uh artificial intelligence and robotics and everything in between i do whatever they pay me to do basically is I don't go down into the deep technical stuff. Um, tends to be more aimed at the business level or people rather normal people rather than technical people. That's just not my forte, but uh, I do it all and people hire me to do that. Do you think it leads into the factor of people think that they're too good to write a book about themselves? So they'll pay someone else to do it for them. Or do you think they're just too lazy to be able to do it? I think that usually they don't have the time. It has nothing to do with laziness. They don't have the time and they don't know how to write. So the same way that you would hire somebody to build your house because you don't know how to build a house. And even if you did, do you have time to do that? So you hire a contractor who builds your house for you. It's the same thing. So what types of like people have you come across, like really good stories or something that you've been able to kind of get straight for people? Well, the first book that I ghost wrote was kind of a steep gradient. Uh, I, was writing my own book and I was attending some writing critique groups, which is where uh, several writers sit around. In this case, it was about a dozen in a coffee shop and you tear each other's work apart and it gets pretty, um, quote, bloody, quote, um, not literally bloody, but where we were really going at it and saying, you know, that's wrong, that's wrong, you know, do to do that, et cetera. So I was, I'm writing a science fiction story and a guy is there who's starting a ghostwriting company and he hired me to write a book. Now I was, I was, um, brand new at it. And he grossly underpaid me. He paid me, I think $750 to rescue a book. He started it. Another ghostwriter worked on it. That ghostwriter quit. And then I took it over. So there were two people who worked on it. He handed me the notes from interviews. They were awful, uh, handwritten notes. And, um, the ghostwriter who, um, who I took over from actually is a wrestler. She's a, it's a, she, 
I'm not going to name her name, but she's actually a wrestler and she does other things too. She's a very interesting person, but I mean, for 750 bucks, she figured she did her work and she did enough work for that. And that was that she wasn't going to, she wasn't going to write a whole book, writing a book's a lot of work. So it was a book about an Afghan politician and I, I can sort of talk about it because he kind of gave up the project. So I'll just be general about it. Uh, he was a politician in Afghanistan before the Soviets invaded uh, back in the 70s. So this was before the Taliban, before 9-11, before all those things. <clears throat> and he was coming, one of the stories was he was coming over on an airplane to the United States when just attending college in the United States. And a stewardess comes up to him and says, uh, so what kind of food do you want? And he says, well, what do you got? And she says, well, we've got you know, this and this and hot dogs. You want a hot dog? He said, oh, no, 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 don't want a hot dog, no. So she walks away, and then he turns to his brother, and he says, um, they eat their dogs in the United States. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I, it's crazy because, like, the weirdest thing, I think, when a lot of people talk about writing or doing something, they, they feel like it's like a dying art in a way. And like you were saying, you used a text to kind of voice translation thing. It's it's really, really weird to see how technology's kind of brought us to this thing. Like, where did your fascination with writing even come from? Especially you're writing books that people are paying you to write about usually their life or how to sell their idea. Isn't that find it a little bit difficult? Well, it is very difficult. There's not a lot of ghostwriters. There are a lot of write people who call themselves writers. Um, there are probably hundreds of thousands of them. There are over a thousand books published on Amazon every single day. Uh, brand new books. Um, but ghostwriters are pretty rare breed. There's probably less than a thousand of us in the United States. When you consider the population is 600 million, that's not a lot. Uh, I got my, my, um, impetus to writing when I was six years old. I, I picked up a book by Isaac Asimov, who's an old science fiction, science history. He wrote everything. He wrote 500 books. His goal was to write 500 books before he died. And I think he got to 501 before he died. And I said, I want to be just like him. I want to write books just like him because he wrote about everything. You, you want to learn about Shakespeare, you can find a book by him. You want to learn about atomic energy, you can find a book by him. You want to write science fiction, um, the movie I, Robot was from a book by him, if you remember that with Will Smith. Yeah, I mean, everybody remembers Will Smith. Come on now. I think, yeah. I think it's the whole concept of like any type of movie that we have today, it's easier for people to go see that than actually go read a book. You don't sometimes know what you get, like the feeling you get when you read a nice book. Um, just the paper, first of all, like I, I kind of got humbled by it in a way when I got out of school and I started going to thrift shops and I realized how easily I could get a book by William Shakespeare for 50 cents at a thrift store. All these old finds, I started finding Percy Jackson type series and all these types of things. I was always a good reader, but I just never felt like I had the amount of time to be able to sit down and read a book, but I understand it why people bring their books to like restaurants and they sit there and read it because it does play a movie a little bit in your head. It just, it's a little bit harder to make that movie something. You have to actually go out of your way and kind of have the creativity and imagination to kind of picture it in your mind. Well, yeah, yeah. The um, books aren't dying by any means. They're, they're just changing forms a bit. Books are very, very popular. They're now on eBooks. They're on paperbacks, hardcovers, um, audiobooks. I've got almost 500 audiobooks that I need to listen to. <laughs> Sadly, the thing is, though, the only part of the writing or book industry that's dying is the fact that there's only like a few Barnes and Nobles left, or they used to be all over the place. Well, yeah, technology's changing. That's actually something I write, I ghostwrite a lot about is uh, digital transformation is what it's called, where companies are changing very, very fast. And if they can't keep up with the change, they die. Well, see, you can see that happening to Sears right now. Sears just can't keep up, and they're dying very quickly. And also, and, there's so many markets with technology, like the, they're just monopolies, basically. Like Amazon has literally bought everything. It's now becoming into what Netflix is. Netflix is like a TV show, uh, like being able to see all your favorite shows, movies, everything like that. Well, Amazon just started doing like comedy specials and now they're doing movies now too. Sooner or later, we're not even going to see Netflix anymore. Well, I don't know about that. Um, I don't, I really don't know, but, but Amazon, it's um, success is that it creates a platform that satisfies the needs of customers. And makes gives them a good experience. I'm I'm actually written a lot about 
customer experiences. And that's very, very important. The better you go to Walmart's website and it gives you a great experience. You, you enjoy going there. It, it's very easy. You can check out really fast. You can use any kind of payment. You've got shipping options. I mean, Amazon's even going to start using drones and you can have it in two hours. I actually had a router go out and I had it delivered two hours later from Amazon for free. That's just amazing. Did course, they have the drone drop it off? No, no. A guy, a guy came by. They don't allow the drones in cities in the United States. They do in Canada, but not in the United States. That scares the crap out of me, man. If I, I just can't think at one point I order something off Amazon, then a drone comes flying in through my window and just starts tearing up my whole house and beating the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm trying to like hide under the covers. Well, remember they're they're they are piloted. They're just piloted remote. There, there's no autonomous drones yet. Yeah, but you know what happens? People pilot those things. And I know there's going to be one guy just like the dude on IT when I call and I'm like pissed off. Like, <laughs> I can't get my router to work. He's like, is, is it on? I'm like, no, it's not fucking on. Like, I, I always want to look up the statistic of those amount of people that just climb on top of the roof every single day at work and just think about jumping because the amount of shit they must get from people, they literally come in contact with a, probably a whole wide variety of idiots. Well, I actually used to run uh, two help desks at Trader Joe's, two support desks, and one for users and one for the warehouses. And our first question generally was, is it plugged in? Is it turned on? Oh, <laughs> and, and you'd be amazed at how many times, oh, sorry. <laughs> the light in. is blinking. I think it's on. It's talking to me. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. the weird thing is the fact that they're not able to hang up on you unless you give them like an aggressive tone of voice. Like if you cuss at them, they immediately have the power to hang up on you. Uh, well, yeah. Our My clients at Trader Joe's, the people who, clients meaning users were, CFO, CEOs, and things like that. We didn't hang up on them, that's for sure. <laughs> Dude, I had to wait three hours to get my TV repaired on a line. I was sitting there calling to do my support case. And I'm sitting here, I swear, three hours. I, I legit waited three hours for this because it's a 55-inch TV. You're just not letting that just go down. You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to go down swinging, if anything. So I'm sitting there on the line, and after all this time, I literally wasted like a whole Saturday. The dude finally picked up. And he's like, hello, how can I help you today? And I said, oh, thank fucking God. And then he hung up on me. I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Dude, I was so upset. A bit of my soul actually died, I think, at that moment. Yeah. But I, 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 I do like the power aspect of that. But, I mean, it's just so difficult because you're trying to walk someone through something and they know nothing about it. And you already have, like, all the basic steps you have to kind of walk them through. And then when you're, when, when you're trying to explain it to them, like, is it on? Then some people think you're thinking of them like an idiot. Like, oh, no, it's not fucking on. The next thing you know, you hang up and they have to call back and wait 45 minutes. Well, I have the opposite problem. Sometimes I'm a router guy, so I, I know routers pretty well so when i when my router goes out i call the support group and they have to go through all the simple stuff you know can you, did you do this and do that and do this i'm like dude i already know this stuff i've already done it let's skip to the intermediate <laughs> bro i'm on level 30 already you're talking to me like i'm on level two let's skip the baby steps and go straight to running there are times when i've just said give me level two support give me level three support and they do they will. And, and I go straight to them and then I'm talking to the guy, router talk, you know, and what, what about this, this heading and this and this and this. And he's like, you really know your stuff. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I used to do this. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's like, because I do have a little bit of fascination when it comes to writing and dude, let me tell you, just by talking to you and kind of looking a little bit more about what ghostwriting is, I've kind of already expanded my knowledge a little bit. I mean, the fact is, I thought ghostwriting, I swear you were writing paranormal books when you sent me the message. You were like, I'm a ghostwriter. Let's talk about that. I'm like, wait a minute. So you, you, you write about ghosts? Like, are you doing memoirs of ghosts? Are you doing like famous ghosts like Abraham Lincoln or something? And then I started looking into it. I'm like, thank God I did a little bit of research before even asking you what a ghostwriter was because I was completely off. That's funny. That's very funny. Yeah, I do get I do get stuff like that all the time. So no worries. It so happens. what do you see? Are you like, you always like, I mean, I know the hardest things for me and the reason why I never really wanted to try publishing or writing anything was I found that I do have a fascination. Like when I do sit down and write and make myself actually type something out, I'm able to craft these amazing words into sentences where like I've gotten a couple papers that I've wrote on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and these types of things on art. I've gotten those uh, published in my school's newspaper and stuff just because of how good they were. But 
I, I keep reading over and over, and it's always the smallest little bit of mistakes. And when you see that little red squiggly line under a word or something, it really kind of sets you in like it, where you think you're on your high horse. Like I just crafted this beautiful, this beautiful lyricist, and then next thing you know, you're reading it, and you're like, oh my god. I'm an idiot because like half the shit is like literally underlined in red. Like you spelled it wrong or you're typing too fast. You're, but you're like, I'm typing. My brain is thinking so many words. I'm just trying to get it all down as fast as possible. And sadly, I have like a level two typing skill. Like I'm still slower <laughs> than a four-year-old. Yeah, well, that's that's all proofreading and, and such. And that's a different um, thing. Writers should never proofread their own work. You should always hire somebody to do that for you. Because writers are terrible at catching their own mistakes. But some of the tricks, in case you want to know, is first of all, you wait a day at least to read it. You read it out loud forward. And then you read it out loud backwards, paragraph by paragraph. And what that does is it breaks the circuit. It causes you to, you're not, it breaks whatever's going on in your brain that makes you skip over words and things. So you read the last paragraph, then the paragraph before that, and then the paragraph before that. Kind of like the movie Memento. <laughs> Is it a little bit like stepping back from something? Like a lot of times, like if you're painting yeah. or you're like getting really involved into one thing, that if you step back for a second, you get a whole other perspective? Yeah. And then you also join writing critique groups and you read it out loud and other people catch errors for you. And that works really well too, reading it to somebody else. <clears throat> have you ever have you ever had one really good book or one really good ghostwriting thing that you've done that you really kind of think about still to this day? I've got quite a few, but the thing with ghostwriting is I'm under non-disclosure for everything except for the a couple and the stuff that's really really good. I can only be real vague about. Um, I did a book on artificial intelligence that's really nice. It's in bookstores now. Um, I've done another one on the Internet of Things, which is smart light bulbs and smart factories and smart cities and things like that. And that one came out really good. Those two I'm real proud of because um, I didn't know a lot about the subject when I started and then had to learn it. That's one of the things about ghostwriting is you're thrown straight in to the deep end of the pool with lead weights and there are sharks swimming around. <laughs> and you don't have any weapons. You don't have and any floaties or anything? Nothing. You just jump right in and you're expected to know it. And uh, you just start writing and you, you just start first interviewing and then writing. So I'm, I do a lot of what you're doing right now. I interview for hours and hours and hours, the client and, and anybody he specifies that I should. Sir, interview. this is a conversation. Don't put me in with those interview folk. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I always try and highlight the aspect. Like it does kind of seem a little bit like an interview, but at times like it just goes off sometimes. Like I've tried to skip five minutes into my podcast. Next thing I know, I missed the whole conversation on aliens and being abducted or something. And it's, it's, it's just as far as you can really take it. I really enjoy connecting with people. Like I don't have the time to sit down and write a book. Sadly, people are writing every single day. The factor is they're not writing a physical book they're writing a, I guess a life book you know you're telling me right now you're telling me the history of your life you're telling me things that you're doing things that you've done and that's able for me and selfish intent not I mean I'm a very good reader but I'm lazy as shit when it comes to reading so I like doing this better because I'm able to kind of talk and sure sure you're more of an extrovert yeah. Well, and I, I'm more of an introvert. Yeah. See, I was introvert for so long, but the fact was I became so introvert that I literally turned myself into an extrovert. I was, you know, I was so comfortable not talking to people for years. And then there was just a point like, oh shit, I need to actually connect with the world that I live on because people are hurting just like me. You need to hear the rest of my story. So let me tell you the good, the interesting part. And you'll, you'll find, this is when I turned from an introvert to an extrovert. So I got married when I was 33 to who I thought was my, um, my um, soulmate. And it, it turned out to be a rough marriage because basically I met her. We went on two dates. And on the third date, I asked her to marry me. And on the, the, um, that day, we were pretty much married. <laughs> we had a potluck wedding with, in the church next door. And, and we were married. And she got very, very sick, and she was sick for 12 years uh, because she smoked and had asthma, and it just escalated and got worse and worse and worse until finally she passed away in 2005. Well, one thing about me is I don't like grief. Grief is not a friend. It's not somebody you invite over for tea. Grief is an enemy to me. You lock the doors when grief comes up. So 
and you're going to experience it. It happens. Um, you're pretty young right now, but when you experience, uh, I think you are, you said 21, right? Yeah. I've experienced a good amount of grief. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as you get older, you'll experience more It's part of life. It's part of that contract you sign when you're born that you're going to experience all that. Um, or you didn't read probably, but you signed it. <laughs> That's the way I put it. So anyway, she passed away and I thought, okay, I don't want any grief. So I, I drove out to Joshua Tree National Park where I'd hiked about a hundred times, which is out in California. I climbed to the top of Skull Rock and sat there all day long and uh, decided I was going to change my life. So the first thing I did uh, when I got back was get a bunch of tattoos. <laughs> and here I am, this conservative um, white guy, and I've got my arms covered in tattoos. And that turned 50 years old, get a bunch of tattoos, you know. Um, to, to signify that life had changed. And then I went out and started um, meeting people and photographing. And I decided since I was introverted and shy and basically caved in from the grief that the camera would help protect me and help get, kind of be like a thing to push me into things, into people. So I started taking pictures. I got a professional camera and went to um, uh, all the national parks in California, Nevada, Arizona, the whole um, American Southwest, and in state parks and the local parks, and just had a blast uh, with lots of adventures, you know, falling down cliffs and getting to cact falling on cactuses and cacti, cactuses. Um, I, think and it's, I think it's plural to be cacti. I think so, yeah. Um, and, and all kinds of great adventures that one, one of these days I'll write up. I took probably 300,000 pictures of nature. And then I started going to Renaissance fairs. And the Renaissance fair people are very, um, it's like a circus family. And they're very, very, very close knit. And they recognized the state I was in. And they took me in as their official photographer. And they actually hired me to photograph Renaissance fairs. So I was busy photographing Renaissance fairs. And I photographed the California Renaissance Fair down in Irwindale, California. And became great friends with all these entertainers and things. And their backstage shows are quite interesting, by the way, the ones that are not open to the public. <laughs> and then um, I sat in front of a belly dance show. And in th these belly dance shows, these women are dressed up as Moroccan belly dancers. So they're, they're full length, super hot, not hot as in sexy, hot as in like heat, costumes, head to toe, very, very authentic. And I just sat down and started photographing for seven weekends in a row and took thousands of pictures, put them on the internet. They found them, they downloaded them, they loved them. So on one of those weekends, this lady, she's the, the head of what they called the tribe, the belly dance tribe. Her name was Marjani and she's a wonderful lady. Only at the time, I was still extremely conservative. So, and shy and caved in and all that. She walks up to me and I'm like, She's about, I think, five foot, four inches tall, um, a little heavy set, uh, studs and tattoos and all kinds of stuff. And I, I, I just was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> she's going to mug me. I know it's going to happen. She's, she's going to knife me or something. She didn't like the pictures. I don't know. You know. I had a good she, run with the kidney. <laughs> she, she came up and put her arm around me and said, um, uh, we really like your pictures. Thank you for taking them all. We would like you to continue. We would like you to be part of our group. You're now our official photographer if you accept. But we need to tell you one thing. Photographers that use the telephoto lens in the back row are considered creepy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, well, the fact is you're going to a belly dancing show, okay? So a lot of people see hear like anything about belly dancing, they immediately think strip club. They immediately think yeah, like, no, it's nothing like that. It's it's literally a form of expressing themselves, much like dances. It, they're expressing themselves with the movement of their body. At the Renaissance Fair, which is very conservative. So anyway, um so she moved me to the front row cuz she said, you know, you're definitely not creepy. And moving to the front row center. And from then on, at every show I went to, I was in the front row center of every single show. And she introduced me to the entire belly dance community in Southern California. And within two years, I was the Southern California belly dance show photographer and Renaissance Fair photographer. Got over a million pictures online. Um, Wait, hold on. Photographed 12. Did you give yourself that title or were you given that title? Which title? The title of the Renaissance picture guy. That's what they call me. 
okay, the Renaissance people called you that. Yeah. All right, that's good because if you were calling yourself that, that was immediately going to turn into something like, all right, you're posting pictures of belly dancers on the internet. How many of these women are above the age of 18? <laughs> Most of them. All right, well, that's good. Yeah. And, and the ones that aren't, there's permission of mothers and stuff. Um, so that's all important. But they're, they're very well, they're not actually, you get to, like you said, they're not strippers, they're belly dancers, which means they are dressed very conservatively, you know, in chain mail and, and, um, head to toe clothes and things like that and anyway um uh where was i oh so they 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 i started i photographed over 1200 shows and over 400 renaissance fairs all over the united states i was literally flying every weekend to a different show or different fair, different fair and i actually started producing shows and i started um um help uh, contributing to charity shows and things like that. I produced my own show, um, which is quite fun. And well, you experienced a loss and you, you kind of found a way to get over that through the Renaissance a little bit. I did. I did. That's amazing, man, because I actually have a fascination with the Renaissance period, the amount of <laughs> stuff we were able to create, the amount of arts we were able to do. I mean, one of my favorite people throughout history is Leonardo da Vinci, just because of the fact that he had one of my favorite quotes is art is never finished just left undone and he believed you can constantly work on something and constantly mm -hmm. add something into the mm -hmm. mix he believes people were never finished products even till the end of our days we're just constantly a work in progress but i didn't get to the kicker yet so i decided something that um that I, somebody told me is he was all lonely and stuff because it was his birthday and nobody remembered his birthday and i told him well, that's because your birthday isn't important to anybody else unless you make it important to them. And then I was sitting, month. yeah, and then I was sitting there thinking, I'm kind of depressed because nobody's here for my birthday, going to be showing up for my birthday. And then I thought, well, I should take my own advice, shouldn't I? <laughs> so I created a yearly tradition and I had over 100 belly dancers and Renaissance Fair people come to my party and put on a party for me, which I rented a room and I would have, my last one was in 2013 and I had over 200 dancers uh, come to the, come and dance and perform. Um, and that one we had break dancers and belly dancers and sword dancers and snake dancers and all kinds of cool stuff all coming. Um, uh, even a couple of mermaids. It was a very interesting thing. And then a couple of Renaissance groups came in and did Renaissance things. And those were great times, you know, eight, eight years of solid, performances um just for me you know i was pretty much the main guy there there were of course husbands and things most of most of these dancers are married and i, mean, I, um, I had a private thing like that when i turned 21 it was uh but her her name was cinnamon and she was <laughs> she was a little bit different but um i think it's pretty cool man because a lot of people like they look at like these slideshows these types of circus acts like you were talking about how it was like kind of like a circus thing uh -huh. they they look at that and they think that people are just insane or type of weird that you know it gives them the reason to point and laugh at them because they're different and uh -huh. they're honestly some of the nicest people i've ever met i mean i haven't met a whole lot of carnies or a whole lot of circus people before but i've met like people that go on saying they're the lizard man and these types of freak show type things that they call and they go by the name freak on purpose because they understand they're different but the fact is they they have something that we are all truly missing, and that is connection. They're able to be real with people. They're able to, you know, actually care for others, which is what I find really, really interesting. Actually, a show that got me really inspired into that was a movie um, with uh, God. What's his name that played with Will Ferrell and Step Brothers? Uh, John C. Riley. He plays in a movie called uh, Cirque, Cirque de Freak, and it's about like vampires and all these things. Uh -huh. in this community. Uh -huh. That movie's amazing. I haven't seen it, but yeah, I imagine it is. Yeah, it's just it, the whole aspect. Like he, it, it shows. It's a, literally a group of people that come together with all these different things about them that consider them not society's normal basic humans, and they they're able to live like one another. They tr they create their own community, and I'm like, but they're not closed off to anybody. They're open to letting people into their community, even if they're not what's known as a freak. And I see that. I'm like, that's what people need to do more in life. Yep. They need to be more open. So I'll continue with the story. <laughs> Holy crap. I thought it was over like five minutes ago. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I became really good friends with a lot of these ladies. And, and I'm talking friends. Um, uh, and it turns out that 
one of the complaints of most of the 1200 women that I photographed is, is that men can't have women friends. Men just don't do that. Well, I, I'm a believer that men can have women friends and I'm proof of that. So one lady I met, her name's Jana, and she is an, an incredible lady. And we met at a at one of my very first shows and she sat down next to me and started goofing around and putting a sword on her head and stuff like that, and cheering me up um, and so forth. And we became really, really good friends. So November comes around that year and um, this was before I was doing the parties and I thought, okay, it's in November. That's when my birthday is. I'd like to go to the Grand Canyon, but one thing I don't want to go to is the Grand Canyon alone, especially not in November. So I called her up and said, I want to go to the Grand Canyon. And she says, why? What do you want? <laughs> and I said, I want to just go to the Grand Canyon with somebody. And that's it. We'll just be friends. And she said, oh, okay. So we went to the Grand Canyon. We took the train from the Amtrak all the way to the canyon to Williams. And we took the train for, as a special train from Williams. I, took, I got the luxury car. Took that down to the canyon. Stayed in the canyon for a few days. That's that ghost money. That's that ghostwriting money. Yeah. And then, well, I worked at Trader Joe's during this time and then um, did, did the return trip. The deal was, is we went to the canyon together and she had to do a performance on the edge of the canyon so I could photograph her. So she put on her belly dance costume and danced on the edge of the canyon with a 3000 foot drop behind her for a few hours, for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Um, and uh, what I didn't tell you is, is the temperature was five degrees. Um, <laughs> it was cold and there was ice everywhere and snow and stuff. And she did a great performance and it's all on tape, you know, it's all videoed and pictures and stuff. Best pictures I ever took in the air is real crisp and things. And, and, uh, she thought it was interesting that she had now positive proof that a guy could be just friends. So the next year there was a cruise that was happening where 150 dancers were going on a ship in Sonata. And the thing about cruises, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but they're sold double occupancy. You, if you're going single, you buy two rooms, you buy two tickets. You can't buy just a single ticket. Yeah, well, they can't just have, they don't just have one bedroom spots. They have, it's double right. usually. So, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to spend, buy two tickets. I mean, that's expensive. So um, she couldn't find somebody to room with her and I couldn't find anybody to room with me. So we actually went on the, cruise together in the same room just friends we did that four years in a row so the first year we went had a great time the second year we went had a great time the third year her boyfriend had to check me out because she had a new boyfriend to make sure that i was cool and the fifth year uh, she said she could the fourth year she said she couldn't come because she married that boyfriend and she was all depressed and then the boyfriend she told the boyfriend or the husband now and the husband said um we'll just go with richard he's cool <laughs> Now, at any point, did that guy think you were gay? Because you got to nope. understand what you're doing is what you what you're explaining on doing. That's the hardest thing for people to comprehend, because nope. it, the statistical fact with how most people are in the world that women cannot be friends with guys. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are women, but it always kind of seems to lead down the road to kind of doing something and not me intent. Like, I'll be 100 percent like this is a friend to friend basis. But sometimes, dude, it's just the fact that it's human nature to kind of it's two people of two different genders being around each other constantly. There's always going to be that. It might not happen now. It might not happen ever. But it there is a. Oh, I'm not that. saying that that there weren't women who were more than friends. I'm just saying that in, that there were lots of these women who were just friends. And what what I wound up doing was establishing the barriers up front, and we'd have the chat. And say, so what's what's this relationship? She'd say, we're just going on a, on a cruise. That's it. We're being friends. Okay, good. And um, that's what it was until it changed. Until and if it changed. So, you know, where where women say you got to have consent, consent is very important to me. And if the woman tells me that she wants to be this to be a friendly thing, then it's a friendly thing. If she changes her mind and I want to consent because it goes both ways, then, then fine. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to go beyond the barrier or the boundary that's set unless there's consent. Does that make sense? It does make sense. The problem is that most people, most like they don't know how to act when their hormones or something gets kicked into rage. Well, I'm an adult. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> even with adults, that happens too. I mean, you can't tell me Bill Cosby had consent on all those women. You know, that he didn't have consent on most of, on those women. That's, that's the point. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he, you know, it was it was I was kind of. Crazy. I'm also not a criminal like Bill Cosby, so. <laughs> yeah, well, everyone thought Bill Cosby was a good. Uh, I know it was the biggest shock to me in the world because I grew up with him as the literally the world's most dangerous serial rapist. I heard that I was like, but he's. My oh, Weinstein got him topped, but yeah. Uh, he did. Technically, apparently, all the people that keep coming out about stuff. Apparently, Bill Cosby's like the worst one so far. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's really, really weird. I think it's like uh, there's a comedian um, that has a joke. Uh, Christina Przitsky talks about how she finds it weird uh, a comedy like person uh, that knows they're fucked up if they don't talk about their dick on stage. I mean, he was seen as a clean comic. You know, he was seen as the comedy grandfather. Actually, when all that stuff happened, people, a bunch of people, came out and were like, "Hey, that's not him. There's no way." And then eventually, it led up to the point like. Oh crap! There's like 50 people saying that they had an experience with Bill Cosby, even a couple dudes, which was really, really, really interesting. And if you hear about all the stuff he used to do, like he used to pay people to sit and watch him eat curry, like literally sit there while he just ate curry. That was that was it. They'd just sit there and watch him. You know, um, I don't. I, I've stayed away from the whole story of Bill Cosby because I, I basically, I was a kid when he was. And when he started out and he, I kind of grew up at the same time he did and really looked up to him and he's a big disappointment. And I, I've stayed away from the whole thing because it's disgusting. It's disgusting. You know, you just control yourself. That's all. Just control yourself. And you can. <laughs> Sadly, a lot of times people just, it's the same thing I chalk up to people that kind of complain about their problems every single day, like in a conversation, even though it wasn't even brought up. It's the whole fact that we're, we don't know how to, when we get overwhelmed with something, we don't know how to deal with it properly. Um, at least not, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying a lot of people in general, uh, at least the general public, a lot of people don't know how to, they either, when they get upset or they get angry, they choose to overreact in a moment that's actually not going to affect them later down the road. It kind of overwhelms them in a way. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I get, um, and and I do, you know, I'm I'm human. <laughs> whenever I get kind of down, you know, okay, life's hard, you know, um, money's tight this month, or you know, I'm, nobody's coming to my birthday, or whatever it is. Um, there's this guy. He's a channel on YouTube called Pleasant Green, and he uh, he basically interfaces with scammers, and he finds a, he, somebody tries to scam him, and he wants to basically get them out of scamming. He wants to get them make them um make them um have real honest people so he actually got in a conversation with one of these scammers and sent him a camera and the scammer became his photographer and they actually wrote a book together and the book is now on sale on amazon and the scammer dropped out of scamming but the deal was is all the money from the book the scam the, the ex scammer got but he had to spend half of it on charities and things in nigeria so they made a thousand dollars on the book and he sent it to the ex scammer guy and he um he put most of that money into helping the school children and, and the farmers and things in the area and then this pleasant green guy flew out to nigeria and met the guy and he looked around this guy's living in a tin roof house and eight children or something and gets a dollar a day or some ridiculously low amount of money, a dollar a month or something. I think it was even less and they don't have any water. And, and I could go on and on and on. I think, okay, I don't have any problems compared to that. <laughs> well, see, the problem is you, you get a problem when you start comparing your life to other people's, which sadly is a main thing a lot of people do in the world today. I always tell people, your problems are your own. You've been given your problems because you're strong enough to deal with them. It's the same thing Bruce Lee said. You know, God gave you this life because you were the one tough enough to walk it. Someone in your situation um, or had to deal with some of the problems you face, wouldn't be equipped to deal with it. There's a reason why they're also known as your problems. I think a lot of times people in the world today, they create these 
problems, but they take it to an extent where it becomes their whole life, where they think they're never going to get past it. It's just going to constantly be there and their life is going to be nothing. And I tell them those are just immediate things. Those are things you know that you can work around, you can't get past. And it's hard for people to kind of hear that from a person my age. They just think immediately like I'm just an idiot and I'm just a dreamer or something. I'm like, hmm. I'm, I'm not at all. I've had problems, but I've worked past them. You know, I've experienced a shit ton of problems in a, in a, in a four day time period to the point where I felt the world was just going to literally shitting on me every single day. But that I think it's all how you take it. You know, it's all about the way you want to kind of express yourself. I mean, like we could chalk up same thing with writing. When you're writing something, you're writing for, like you said, you had to do research on the person that you're writing about. You had to do research into everything that you were kind of just learning about on the spot. So you were more informative to kind of create it into the way that they would want to be able to read it or be it expressed. The same thing a movie or a documentary gets expressed. You take some Bill Cosby or something wants to be focused on all the bad shit he did. No, he wants to be focused in a documentary on all the good shit he's done, all the producing stuff he's done. You know, he was a comedy genius. And like, but people are only going to remember from his bad stuff. See, people like to hold on to the bad things and truly highlight that aspect of that person, considering that's the whole person, when it could just be a tough time that they're going through. Well, of course. Of course. We we all have our own problems and and it's based on our experiences and what we see from other people. A lot of, a lot of um, younger people nowadays and probably some older people are brought up where they're very protected. So when they get out into the real world, they're not protected anymore and they don't know what to do. And I used to hire people like this. Um, we used, we called them millennials, but I'm not sure that that label really works very well anymore. Um, they, they come in and they, they would ex- have these expectations like, well, why aren't you, giving me this and giving me that. And why don't I have a good desk here? It's like, dude, you're on the low end of the totem pole. You just started. <laughs> you don't get all those perks. Everyone sees all the shit on TV. Like this, you know, and they're also kind of like, just like the, one of the good things I do like that parents did is they tell you, Hey, you're going to be successful in life. You do need that, but you also need to be humbled too. The reason why they always taught you about a backup plan. Hey, why don't you have a plan B in case plan A doesn't work out? Well, a lot of times parents don't have the ability to kind of take the time to explain the plan be they just tell them like you got to have a plan and the kid sets out on that plan 100% and doesn't have any fallback thing and next thing you know his plan doesn't work out and boom I'm not saying that means you should give up on your dream I'm saying you should do everything you possibly can to make yourself happy but also understand the world has its turns the world has some shit that goes on in it that doesn't care if you're in it or not you know it gets loud sometimes. It messes with your ears. You just have to learn to kind of pursue past that. Like the same reason why my I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had no concept. And I think a lot of kids my age still don't have that concept. Luckily, I figured it out a little bit earlier on the fact that I really enjoy talking to people and getting to understand all these different experiences, which makes me drive more and more for my podcast. And I don't want to, I don't want to benefit off this at all. I I'm already benefiting so much by being able to just sit and listen to you and talk to you. You're already connecting me with something I knew nothing about. I'm already better in my mind's aspect by being able to just to, the more people I talk to. That's good. It's good. See, that's, that's one of the things that I teach people in, in I do writing coaching also and book coaching and writing coaching. And one of the things that I teach them is they have to find, well, let me back up just a second. Uh, one of the big problems that most writers have is they, they learn how to write and they learn how to publish. And then they hit what I call the wall of promotion and the wall of marketing. They go, oh my God, I have to be a salesman too. And they, they fail because they, can't, they don't know how to sell their book. So they only sell 50 copies of their book or something. And those are the ones that grandma bought because she took pity on them. Um, but, so then they go out and they search for, they, they get these books that say promote this way and this way and this way. And then they get overwhelmed because there's, you know, there's YouTube and there's this and there's so, Facebook and there's going and book signings and things. And what I teach writers is they need to find what they're comfortable at. I'm not really super comfortable on video. I actually used to do a podcast and I'll probably to pick it up again, but <clears throat> I tend to be a little more introverted. So I'm doing a lot of social media posting and a lot of pictures and a lot of things like that. Um, but there are people who love video, so they should, they should go video. You can't do it all. Find what you're good at and do what you're good at. And it, it's a management style that I learned when I was, I'm taking um, 
a, lo a long time ago uh, from <laughs> my first manager, uh, a guy named Steve Davis. He um, he was my first manager. He actually wound up as an executive, a senior VP at Disney, which is interesting. Uh, Disney is some shady stuff, man. I, I love Disney. It has some good movies, and I've talked to some people that work there that really love their job. But then I start seeing all the weird stuff that comes out about Disney, how everything, like when you're a character, you have to go by that character's name. You can't be called your normal name. Even when you're trying to get your paycheck, it's still like, it's so but, sketchy, so many things that go on there. He was he was in the IT area, so it didn't didn't really see any of that he, he anyway so he, he where was i you interrupted me damn it <laughs> sorry you go off on these stories and i don't know if it ends or not next thing you know there's like there's more to it and i'm like oh my god it's like i'm unraveling a fortune cookie um he told me um he he was he was a what my first mentor my first coach he was very wise even though he was rough basically the same age as me and it is interesting how he became vp at disney um, I don't remember where that was going. I don't know if that was a good thing I did or a bad thing. I'm sorry. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to go cry now. <laughs> uh, see, the crazy thing is like you hear a lot of people chalk up to the um, kind of like the, the, the term that you're wise for your years. And I'm like, I, a lot of that is based on experience. You know, you, when you experience a shit ton of badness, you seem to be kind of more aware or braced for the future. Like you were talking about people – um, like millennials, you called them, um, like coming into your company and thinking that they were had all these expectations of what life was going to be like. No, I got humbled at a young age. I mean, I saw like cars get repoed that were part of my families. I saw those types of bad things. I started seeing <clears throat> really bad parts to kind of not being effective in the world or at least being successful as a person. And I learned to kind of shape those and realize that, like the world's a little bit of a shitty place. But that's because we make it shitty. We choose to profit off each other rather than care about one another anymore. Well, yeah. Oh, it was it was about finding your niche, finding finding what you're good at. I know what I was going to say. You um, you what the way most managers work or is they tend to if you go into a business company and you get a review a, a review by your manager, he's going to find everything that's wrong, and he's going to find a few things that are right. That's typically the way it works. Well, what Steve did is he said, reinforce your strengths and to heck with your weaknesses, unless there's something getting in the way that really needs to be addressed. Uh, you have strengths. I'm a good writer. I'm actually a good programmer. Um, I'm, and I have those strengths. There's things that I'm not strong at. I'm really not a YouTube personality, for example. I could probably mock it up if I had to. And, and be a goofy YouTube thing. I mean, I have dressed as Dracula. Um, I mean, full goth by three makeup artists at a, at a uh, masquerade ball before. So I could probably bring it forward if I had to and be a goofball on YouTube. But it's not me and it's not what I'm good at. So what he said is find what you're good at in your job and do those things and focus on those. So if you're good at management, then take training on management and become better at it. Don't take training. Don't look for your weaknesses because you've got an infinite number of weaknesses. You literally do. <laughs> I think that honestly depends on the person too because if you really focus on getting your weaknesses and turning them into strengths, like a lot of sports athletes uh, kind of do that and they kind of work on getting better as an uh, athlete in general. But also like if you know you're not good at making Ikea furniture – then don't fucking make Ikea furniture. Don't do something you hate unless you truly love it. Like the fact is Bill Burr, I don't know if you know the comedian Bill Burr, but he talks about a joke. Like he doesn't have a, the genetics to get a sculpted six pack or whatever like that. So he's not going to work and try and do that because he knows it's up to, unattainable for him. It's literally, literally you're pushing a boulder up a hill just for it to come right back down and hit you in the face. And it's, it's the best way to talk about it. Like Ben Stiller, he had, abs and meet the fuckers okay or meet the parents and literally like it's because he put in the drive to do that and that was obtainable for him that's not going to work for someone like like ralphie may or something that wouldn't have worked for him exactly so there are times like that you like you said that you have to you have to focus on some weaknesses if you if you want to be a writer and you're good at writing but you can't type well you you better fix the typing uh, it, unless you're using speech, um, but I, I I go back and forth between the two. 
because um, sometimes speech to text is annoying. It goes it goes too slow for well, me. Well, see the problem with, <laughs> the problem with voice to text is a lot of times it doesn't sense like it can't sense emotion. So like I'll get a voice text from like a family member or something like saying something and it'll sound like an argument because the thing won't read its words your words correctly you'll be like go can you go pick up this from the store please it'll be like pick up from store and then it's like you think the person's yelling at you you're like Uh fucking telling me what to do it's like what like no then it turns into a giant argument the problem is when you're trying to voice text or do a voice speech especially when you're writing a book or something it's very hard to invoke your emotions but when you're typing it out you're able to kind of know the words that are going to line up to what you're thinking inside your head and express that emotion exactly exactly um i'm a bit of a genius in a way are you not really i actually am pretty pretty stupid um the whole concept of like i i enjoy reading a good book nowadays, I'm enriched myself into something I never thought I'd be interested in. Just on the fact like Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Hayes has that poem, um, Those Winter Sundays, one of the biggest revelations, at least in my life, only on the concept of, I remember what that feeling and that emotion of, you know, when it's winter time, like it's becoming colder now. And we have this hurricane that's kind of off the coast. And it's created a lot of winds and it creates this brisk type feeling in the air. And I'm telling you, man, there's nothing than feeling your lungs kind of fill up with a little bit of cold air. We're like, Ooh, you know what I mean? Like that whole feeling. It's those, it's those days, man, where you just want to roll up into a little cocoon, sleep inside your, and look, basically look up at the window and see the cracks of the frost. Like that poem explained that to me. And able to envision that in my head really inspired me to read a little bit more and really try and and create this picture in my head. I found my fascination in my imagination, first of all, wasn't limited to just something a movie could show me. It was able to kind of create the scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's why I really chalk up to people like you that do write, even though you're writing about something like a story for someone or someone pays you to write something for them, you're still doing something that honestly you love, but a lot of people don't even take the time to look into anymore. Yeah. And I've written my own books too. Now that you mentioned writing for other people, um, I've got a few fantasy books and I've got several books under pen names, which is pseudonyms. And I've got um, a lot of nonfiction on how to manage, how to run a business, how to protect your computer and how to survive disasters, which is coming in very handy. Now that Dorian is coming our way, <clears throat> uh, I'm on the. Are you on the Orlando side? I I don't know too much to be honest with you. Are you on the Atlantic side? Uh, the Atlantic has a cool name, so I'm gonna roll with that. I I don't know. I have to do a little bit more of hearing from both sides before I can make a good opinion on it. No, no, no. I mean geographically. Oh, I'm on the Atlantic side. Yeah, I'm on the Bay side, the Gulf side. So. Uh, Dorian's going to come across Florida to get to me, so it'll probably be much less powerful. Oh, you're talking about the hurricane. I thought you were talking <clears> about some sides of a story. I lost track because I was still <laughs> thinking about the belly dancer. Where are you located at? I'm I'm East Coast. Okay. Yeah, I'm in Florida. Oh, yeah. You're just like, I'm on Maryland, so you're a little, yeah, you're below me by a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dorian's going to hit um, Orlando at a category four, even five, possibly, it looks like. That's huge. Yeah, we're getting we're getting winds here. I walked outside and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to put on my jacket. It's a little creepy <laughs> out." Yeah, I wrote a book on survival. I wrote a nice. Um, I'm starting to write fiction. Um, one are of you, my newer are you newer a ones. Prepper? No. Why no, we're gonna not? we're gonna die. We're gonna die. Whatever. You don't have a like a shack of beef jerky somewhere. It's like the first thing I'd do. I have uh, about a month's worth of food and a month's worth of water, but that's just. That's just because I know survival. I've been trained. I bet I don't have all of the, you know, now deer what, types of, what What types of survival have you been trained in? I went to a, uh, it's called Civilian Emergency Response Team. Um, it's put on by the fire department. It's seven, three-hour training course. So it's seven times three, um, seven weeks long. And they take you through all of the various survival things that, so you're in an earthquake or you're in a, you're in a disaster of some kind. Uh, the example they used in the class that I was in was a, a bus accident. So you're in a bus with 43 people. What do you do? You're the one who is still conscious and you can still function. So you what start, do you do? You start eating people. 
No. <laughs> you gotta eliminate all the alpha males first, and then you just. The first thing you do is you do triage, which is you, you've got three choices. You got who, who um, can help, who can't help, who can help, who, who you can help. No, the first choice is who can help you, who you can help, and who you can't help. So you, first thing you want, you, you got to go through the entire bus of 43 people in two minutes. This was an exercise we did. And you have to figure that out. And there's, there's some little tests you do on each person. And like you, you press on the thumbnail. And if you press on the thumbnail and that stays white for longer than two seconds, that means they have a, did he, was it a, is a breathing problem. They're not getting enough oxygen in their blood. You can't help them. So you move on. Uh, somebody's got an arterial cut, you move on. You can't help them. Somebody's heart stopped, you move on. You, you don't give them CPR. You got 43 people on that bus. <laughs> you got to think about the people you can save rather than the people right. you're going to waste all your time into. So the That's entire first day is on fact. that. Huh? That's what? A, that, that is a sad fact that people do that and we do that. I mean, I understand, but still, it's like, we're supposed to care. Well, what you do and you care about the most. How many people can you save? As many as you possibly can. And it's, it's that the whole first day is on that. And then the second day is on, I forget, you know, water. And the last day is on a terrorist attack. And it's all very interesting. Um, I took a course also on disaster recovery at a, at a computer um, for computers. So how to recover from a disaster. And I took a um, active shooter course. So what if you're in a, like a school or something and there's an active shooter? You hide what behind you, your desk. Well, yeah. And there's a point at which you make the decision. Are you going to, are you going to take him out or is he going to take you out? And that's what it came down to. <laughs> and that was interesting. Well, that's what it is. The whole fact is they put you in a corner when the shooter, you know, there's shooting drills now at school. They started doing this now. It's like more active shooter drills before we had it. Maybe once every like year, there was like a, if someone breaks into the school with a gun, now they're doing it like on a monthly basis. Like they're doing shooter drills, which really scares the shit out of me considering that. And then we're now that that's becoming a thing. Like, I don't know how much an earthquake disaster drill at school hide under your desk is really going to protect me if an earthquake happens but the fact is hiding your all the students grouping them up into one corner of a room and you always wanted to be the kid on the inside of the circle because then you have a bunch of bodies protecting you if someone does come into your class yeah well this was this was more of an active shooter from an adult viewpoint not not a necessarily student viewpoint well, I think if it works in both aspects, whether you're a child or adult, the fact is you got to try and get the guy with the gun. You got to get that gun out of his hands. Well, you either got to hide from him, um, get out first. You got to get out of the building, or hide from him, or kill him, <laughs> basically. Or I mean, those are your basically your choices. Uh, or he's going to kill you. So, and then you when you get out of the building, one of the things they taught us you have to be really careful because the cops don't know who the shooter is. So you need to be really, you need to have your hands in the air, you know, and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, we took a bunch of those kind of courses and learned how to survive. And it was, it was quite interesting. I think one of the most humbling movies you can kind of watch a little bit that gets you into the aspect of like what it's like to give up on someone knowing that they're going to, there's no way you can save them. Uh, the gray, when they got into that plane accident and the guy literally was looking at him like, you're going to die. It's going to happen. I, there's nothing we can do to save you. And like, everybody's like, what? We have to save him. Try and help me. He goes, it's, it's his leg. Like he's, he's done. His, his artery's gone. He's going to bleed out. We don't have the tools to fix it. So he's just going to have to die. That brings you to like the kind of the realness of like how it was back in the day. You got shot or something and, you know, sometimes they, they couldn't help you and you just literally had to sit there and watch someone die. I mean, I've talked to people that have PTSD from losing people that way. And it's, it's difficult to hear because, you know, in their head, they're like, there's nothing we could do, but they still think about that person and consider it their fault in a way. Of it's, course. It's difficult, man, because you want to try and help everyone. At least that's the deep down nature for everybody. As much as you might want to deny it, you really want to truly help everyone out there in the world and not really hurt anybody. But we lose that aspect in the world where we just learn to care about ourselves more than other people. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but sometimes you have to make the choice. Who, who can you save? Who can't you save? Sometimes you have to make the choice. I try and give everybody that opportunity to be saved only on the aspect of I'm giving you this chance to talk to this 
individual for a little bit and be able to understand each other. I think it's all about understanding, man. I mean, if I could write a book, I'd be, I would do it for sure, but I don't know what I would title it. You know, I think the only book that I've ever seen that had a really good title was um, Greg Proops's book, Smartest Book in the World. Yeah, there's, there's lots, lots of good titles. Um, but uh, titles usually the last thing I come up with because it becomes clear as you write what the title will be. What what do you find the tips, I guess you would say, for writing a book? Because I've I've talked to this girl that was um, – she's 19 Muslim, and she's writing a book on women empowerment. And like I, I know there's a thing that the author of the book usually puts their face or picture in the back of the book, especially if they're of a different ethnicity because usually people look at who the author is first, and then they decide if they're going to read the book. You're supposed to be kind of capture, like captured by the – front page of the book like the title something that stands out and that's what makes you want to read it but i told her like writing a book on women empowerment and being muslim um it's it's going to be difficult for some people to agree with that just on the basis of you being muslim and she said yeah it's been difficult and i said that's is that why you put your name in the back of the book she said yeah because if, if as soon as they open up the book and see who the author is like but by the time if you read a book all the way through and then you find out who the author is your view on that book is not going to change from what you had after you read it. If it was a powerful book and it moved you, you're not just going to be like, Oh, I fucking hate it because it was written by this person. No, it's, it, it's really, really weird. The tips and tricks kind of to kind of sell your book to somebody. Well, there's lots of different ways to sell books and mostly what you have to do is build yourself up or your brand up. Um, rather you don't sell, you don't say buy my book. You say, I'm, you build a tribe of people up. <clears throat> I, when I was interviewing for my podcast, I interviewed this lady who was, she wrote a couple of fantasy books and she got her whole church, 700 people to help her promote her book. And that's one way to do that is to build a tribe is what she called it. And they did all the social media and things like that for her. There were probably 50 active ones and the rest were, were did a little bit here and there, but you can't do it all on your own. If you're going to sell a book and you want to sell more than a few hundred copies, you, you have to have people help you. And to do that, you have to, they have to like you. They have to like your book. They have to like the subject. They have, but mostly they have to like you. Um, and if you're, if the author comes out as not very nice, uh, then he's not going to sell a lot of books probably, unless that's his brand. Uh, there's, there's an author, there's a guy, um, Larry Wingett. He's one of my, favorite authors he wrote he wrote some books such as uh, you're broke because you want to be and people are idiots and i can prove it and they're very good self-help books and he's he just is gruff like he just like you, you know you're an idiot and i can prove it well, <laughs> and here's why and here's what you need to do about it <laughs> that's people's sticks too like i don't know if you ever heard of a guy named dan pena but um He's a he's like this old guy, but he is literally like the most outrageous person you'll ever meet just because of the fact like his books like, you know why you're poor because you fucking suck. And he literally just uh, he's making fun of you and literally like calling you like a, a piece of worthless trash. And that's what gets people to read his motivational books. You know, sometimes you have to be that outright landish individual to kind of sell your product to somebody. Sometimes people need that. But also there's other groups. It's all about like you're saying, finding your niche. You know, there's a select group of people that are going to read a book like if you're writing a book about how to cook using fermented grapes okay that's a very very niche thing right there so you're already targeting an audience like the same thing with my podcast people try and say what's your target audience my target audience is everyone it's very it seems like well you're not you don't have it monetized in a way it's gonna be difficult for you to find your group of people that are gonna stick to it and follow it. Well, see, the thing is, I don't look at views. I don't look at likes. I don't look at any of that stuff. I'm out here for experience and I'm out here to hear everybody's story and give everybody a chance to, you know, be able to express themselves on something, be able to kind of talk and just be able to connect with someone. You know, we don't do that enough around in the world today. And I think that's something that society is a little bit missing in a way. Of course. Society is missing a lot of things. Like you're going to come from this and be like, I was, I was trying to tell this kid this story and he kept interrupting me 
and I, I did I couldn't finish the story. I kept losing place. And in my mind, I'm just gonna be like, I didn't know when his fucking story ended. But it's it's funny because I like hearing that. I like having this banter, this conversation, these types of things. Like I would never have been able to connect with you if it wasn't over um the internet, which I am grateful for. But sadly, the internet has become the default conversation piece for everyone. I still like to go out and try and have conversations in my everyday life, but it took me a while to get there. You know, being introvert for so long, it took a while to finally come out as an extrovert or be able to talk because I thought I sucked. I thought I was not justified in the eyes of anybody to be able to mean anything. And next thing I know, I realized that was a problem myself. When you start trying to do everything for others or not, not I wouldn't say like go out of your way to help others. I'm saying, but like try and structure yourself off what people think of you. You lose the true aspect of who you really are. Yeah, I would say if I was to give one parting bit of advice as we come to the end of this pretty soon is um, never degrade yourself. Never put yourself down. Never say you're stupid. Never say you're an idiot. Never say you, you're not going to make it. Never say, never put yourself down. Now that doesn't mean don't make honest um, reviews of your progress like, okay, I need to do more here. I'm not, I'm, I'm weak in this area and stuff. You can do that, but never ever even jokingly talk about how bad you are how stupid you are how ugly you are because don't worry there's plenty of people out there who are going to do it for you so you don't need to help them and that's that's really where everything starts is self-confidence and self-confidence is different than arrogance and it's different than humbleness self-confidence means i can do that and i'll do the best that i can and if i can't succeed then i'll figure out what i need to do to succeed but if you fail you just okay i failed and what what did i do wrong um you know is this the wrong thing for me to do am i properly trained do i have the experience did i get enough people whatever the reasons are and and pick it up again and do it again or do something else but don't say you failed because you're an idiot because that's the way that's the pavement to hell Everybody's full of imperfections, but those imperfections are what make you you and make what make you unique about, I guess, from anybody in this world that we choose to look alike or act alike. You know, I'm different than basically everybody out there. We're all like, you know, people say, you're like a snowflake. You're so unique. You're just one in a million. It's true. You are like that. But the fact is, nowadays, people want to choose to be the same. And I say, no, let your flaws show. Let your things that you're going to, that you're trying to hide from people because you're afraid they're going to judge you. Let those things show because that shows true character. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you something here. You, sir, are a genius. I'm just well, thank saying. you. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I feel bad because I interrupted your story so many times. but it's, Don't worry about it. It's been, <laughs> Don't feel it's, bad. It's been awesome talking to you, man. I really appreciate you coming out and doing the podcast. It means a lot, man. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.